You're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. Hello all, first up, we look at what might finally be the end of those dastardly US West Coast Docker contract negotiations that have so hobbled US supply chains for the best part of a year. We've got a report from the recent CNS Partnership Air Cargo Conference in Miami. We'll hear how dogs are being deployed to stop lithium battery fires. Yes, you did hear that right. And we have the latest on air cargo markets and rates. And in part two, we're going where many a podcast dares not, by taking on sustainable aviation fuel. Saf to me and you. We're looking at who's going to pay, why there isn't much available to buy, and we'll be asking whether regulations really can make aviation sustainable. I'm joined today by the Lodestar's Alex Lenane, TAC Index Duyen, Peyton Burnett, and not one, but two oil refinery executives in the shape of Chris Gilbert and Simon Holt of Phillips 66. And last but not least, we have DHL's lead on all things green. It's Catherine Brost. If we want to decarbonize in line with the Paris Agreement, then We need to shoot for approximately 30% sustainable aviation fuel by 2030. So it's it's a long way to go. And it's really key to start investing in sustainable aviation fuel today. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. This podcast is available on your app of choice. Please like, follow and review so your colleagues and peers can find us. You can also locate all the latest supply chain news on thelodestar.com where you can subscribe to receive this podcast first direct to your inbox and all for the sum total of nout. Anyway, as trailed in part two, we're looking at how new fuels are making aviation more sustainable but not really very quickly. And I'll also be trying to work out who will be paying for this transition and who will be making all this new fuel. But first up, I'm delighted to welcome back someone who at Lodestar Towers is fondly known as the great originator, a creator rather than a creationist. She brings sunshine to freight journalism, banishing the clouds that loom over all our lives. It's the one and only Lodestar founder and publisher Alex Lenane. Hello, Alex. Hi, Mike. How are you? Oh, sorry, I can't resist. So I, mean, I almost went Game of Thrones and called you the, the mother of freight or something like that. But anyway, <laughs> get that. Uh, let's push on, shall we? Alex, to the US West Coast, I guess we're bound to go. I know many of our listeners are familiar with the story we're going to discuss, but let's just recap the basics for those who maybe don't. Essentially, the Pacific Maritime Association, the the PMA, representing port interests and the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, the ILWU, representing more than 22,000 dock workers at terminals stretching from California to Washington, have for 13 months been trying to agree a new contract covering everything from pensions to automation and to pay. And by the way, they were already getting paid quite a lot. What's all this about a tentative agreement? Surely something has to go wrong, given how long all of this has been dragging on for. Well, that's a possibility, Mike, to be honest. Over the weekend, we spoke with an American economist who said it would be foolish to bet on it being a totally done deal. 
He said, you shouldn't assume anything until it's actually signed. The ILWU itself has said it's going to take months to ratify the deal. We did learn that the deal terms have meant to have been kept secret, but it was leaked to the Wall Street Journal last week, some of the terms of the deal. It doesn't seem too bad, given, as you say, they're already reasonably well paid. They got a 32% pay increase through to 2028, 10% in the first year, and then $2 an hour for the following years. And they're also going to get a one-time hero bonus worth $70 million in total for working through the pandemic. So it's not, I would say the, the terms don't seem too bad for the union. So hopefully they will ratify it. And what's sort of broken this long impasse? Was it intervention by the Biden government? And if it was, why didn't they do something a bit earlier? Well, it does seem to have been, um, yeah, to do with the, the government stepping in. So Julie Sue, the acting Labour secretary, seems to have impressed both parties and, and done so quite quickly, just sort of 24 hours after she got involved. Why didn't they get involved sooner? I, th- I think governments prefer not to interfere too quickly. But in the last couple of weeks, we saw that the negotiations were starting to wobble a bit. And so it looks like they stepped in just about the right time, to be honest. Yeah, I think this Biden government, I can't really remember many other governments being this interventionist, at least where the supply chains and shipping are involved. But maybe that's just the time as we live in. Looking at the shipping side of this and how it's affected rates, which uh, Lodestar's Mike Wackett's been reporting on, there's been a few things that are going on. According to Zenith, spot rates from Asia to both the US West Coast and East Coast spike in the first part of June before we saw Zenith's XSI average spot rate from Asia to the US West Coast fall 6% in the week to 17th of June. Although whether this was due to the good news on the labor contract was hard to tell. Well, it's going to be an interesting market to watch. You were over at the CNS Partnership Air Cargo Conference in Miami. I guess some of the people in the air cargo industry were hoping this maritime disruption would last a bit longer, were they? Well, yes, air cargo loves a bit of disruption. In the last West Coast ports crisis, it, it pulled air cargo out of a rather a big hole, which and it would undeniably be nice at the moment where the market's very weak. But to be honest, at CNS, no one was really counting on those extra volumes. Everyone thought the crisis would be averted. There are still a couple of potential things on the horizon for air cargo. So the ILWU in Canada has voted to strike, which would affect Prince Rupert and Vancouver on the West Coast. And also the Panama Canal is seeing record low water levels at the moment, which is affecting shipping. So you never know, air cargo may yet benefit. What's the more long-term view for air cargo, Alex? There's been this big sort of will we, won't be debate about the queue for peak season. And I noticed an old colleague of mine, Henry Byers at Freight Waves, he was talking, he, well, he was one of the few analysts that has dared to predict that the US might see even lower containerized imports in the second half of this year than we saw even in 2019. His view being that US importers are being cautious. Uh, he's calling this the lingering impact of the bullwhip effect on inventories. But you can also add to that this threat of recession in the US and a weakening global macroeconomic outlook. Are these factors for air freight too? Uh, yeah, they are. But I'm hearing sort of different things now. The feeling at CNS, which of course is very US focused, was that the US economy has, has turned a corner. No one seems to really believe there's going to be a recession now. People are sort of reasonably optimistic. Freightos did an interesting study, I think last week, showing that lower freight rates were contributing to lower prices and that all that excess inventory that everyone's been moaning about 
is now being sold off cheaply, which sort of essentially gives consumers more purchasing power and thus will drive demand is how the argument goes. On the other hand, as Neil Vandervelde, Clive Data Services said yesterday, airlines and forwarders are sort of being their worst enemy by trying to grab market share because they want to grow, which is pushing rates down to the bottom again. So it's a mixed bag. Okay, let's hear another view on this and bring back a long-time friend and supporter of this podcast. It's TAC Index Managing Director, Peyton Burnett. Welcome back, Peyton. Yeah, hi, Mike. As you heard there, Peyton, it, it was, I guess you could say, downbeat at CNS. Um, people aren't quite sure where the market's going. I want to hear what your view is on when rates might bottom out. Will we have a, a fourth quarter peak a little bit later on? But first, could you explain what's been going on in air cargo markets in May and through the first half of June, please? Yeah, so just looking at the rates at the moment, it's been on a downward cycle, but it seems to be flattening out somewhat. With regards to outbound Hong Kong, particularly on Transpac and outbound Shanghai, Transpac, the rates are sort of stabilizing as a result of e-cargo, but we'll come across that later on. So outbound Shanghai, we're seeing a week-on-week increase at 1.4%, and outbound Hong Kong, smaller gain of 0.5%. The other markets, outbound Heathrow, we saw a fall of 12.5%. And from Chicago, there was some gains there at 5.7%. And those gains in Chicago, I mean, is this signs that there is a boost from the US markets at the moment with some of this disruption in shipping that I was just discussing earlier with Alex? Not as yet. We're not seeing this impact the air cargo market and it's not really even a topic of conversation at this point in time but one of the interesting sort of charts that we have is seeing whether the market's trending towards normalization we look at year on year with respect from 2019 to 2020 and again from year on year with respect from 2019 to 2023 and actually you're seeing if you project it out, coming up to convergence there. So it's looking like the market's starting to normalise. And what we're hearing is that they're still weighing up the balancing of the market with supply and demand. So we're not there yet, but it's trending in that direction of normalisation. Peyton, China's post-COVID reopening hasn't really done a great deal for freight markets thus far. Are you seeing any signs of positivity? Where, where are all these exports? They've got to come onto the market soon, surely. Well, the rates are holding up better than expected. It could have been a lot worse. And this is really a result of the e-commerce coming out primarily out of southern China with the likes of Xin and Timu, who are predominantly fast fashion products. They have a special holidays quite regularly. So you're seeing short, sharp surges, and this looks to be carrying on throughout the year. And so that's what's keeping up that southern China market. And just as we look a bit further down the track for 2023, looking at the Baltic Exchange Air Freight Index, which is, of course, powered by TAC Index, we've seen this steady decline in rates since January 2022, in fact. When does this stop, in your view? Are you a bull or a bear on the fourth quarter? Put it, put it a slightly different way. Sure. I think looking at the fourth quarter last year, essentially there was no peak. 
and a number of borders got burnt. I think they've sitting on the sidelines this year, but some others have taken those bets up. So let's see what happens there. Interestingly, we're seeing some of the shippers moving towards index-linked positions. What this does, they, they seem quite amenable or accepting that the rates may go up or down. But since they're accessing rates at essentially market price plus or minus a premium, they feel confident that they can continue to have access to capacity, even if there's a sudden jolt in the market. One of the other things they're saying is they're saving anywhere in this particular instance, sort of 80 to 100 hours that's normally taken up by RFQ tenders. And what they're really trying to do is price discovery. So I think we'll be seeing more of these index link contracts coming to the fore further down the line. And these are essentially new risk management tools for the market. Okay, interesting. Um, finally, as the Lodestar reported, and it was, they actually did quote your good self, Middle East carriers are coming under scrutiny regarding the number of flights flown from mainland China. What's happening here? Is this about winning market share due to lack of access to Russian airspace? Um, what, why do the Chinese care? And what happens next? Will this affect rates? Yeah, so what I was told over the last couple of weeks is to just to be on the lookout for this. So this is, I would say, an unverified rumour. But what they said to look out for would be an increase in rates outbound from Shanghai. And we have seen it in this week's rates. So let's see what happens over the next couple of weeks and if that's maintained. I think what they, what they were saying is that during COVID, the Chinese government was maybe a bit more looser with reviewing the number of flights they can operate. But now that the rates are low, they're probably wanting to help out the local carriers and so try and push some of the capacity off the market or onto the side of the market and then help the local carriers. So that's something to look forward to. And then just going back slightly to what you were saying regarding to the outlook, say a little bit further on, so even past Q4, what we're hearing is the rates are low. So the first sort of entities to suffer will be the dedicated charter operators. But you'll also be seeing a number of old stock coming off the market, particularly the old BCFs coming up for heavy checks. So they won't be so viable. And then to try and end on a more of a positive note, e-commerce isn't going anywhere. And that's really helping pick up the market. And it just can't move by sea. So hopefully that will carry on for, for the coming years as the market begins to normalize. But again, what I hear from the leasing company and traders, they're still trying to find the balance between supply and demand, and we're not quite there yet. So there's still some volatility in the market to come. Always nice to hear about a bit of sunshine in these markets at the moment. Peyton Burnett, thanks for sharing your thoughts today with Lodestar podcast listeners. Thanks a lot, Mike. Cheers. Quite a lot going on there for those Middle East carriers. Also, there's been a fair bit of a shake-up on the personnel front, hasn't there? Yeah, that's right. We heard yesterday in the Lodestar that there are some seismic shifts in personnel. Martin Drew, who's been Etihad for about 17 years, I think, is leaving. Now, we think for personal reasons, but it, it's coming after Abu Dhabi's Sovereign Wealth Fund, ADQ, took over Etihad fully, I think, in September. That may also have been responsible for the loss of Stephen Pullman's of Tiaka fame, 
who is leaving Abu Dhabi Airport after just 18 months. But perhaps the biggest headline news is that sources are telling us that Guillaume Hallow, head of QR Cargo, is also leaving. The carrier hasn't confirmed his departure yet, but sources are suggesting he may even leave the cargo business altogether. And as, as someone put it on LinkedIn, he's towered over both the carrier and the air cargo industry. So it'll be quite a loss. And also unclear what's going to happen next at Qatar, which has lost a few managers recently. And the last few years, anyway, has previously had a European in charge. So it'll be interesting to see who comes up next. But we've also just heard that it's not just the Middle East that's having a bit of a change of personnel. Apparently, there's a bit of an exodus of managers at CMA, CGM Air Cargo. Apparently, it's nothing to do with the entry of Air France KLM into the setup there. But I've got a feeling we'll hear about more about this in the coming weeks. Well, I've, I've requested interviews, so you never know. But CMA, CGM seem to be in charge of, of doing the interview, so less likely than more. Good luck with that. Good luck. I will need it indeed. Quite a few hot seats there in the Middle East then. But back to CNS, if we if we can, Alex, you were massively impressed by the lack of women attending and speaking and also about how speakers were sort of pigeonholed by topic and gender, if I can put it like that. I mean, there, there were a reasonable number of women attending. On the first day, very, very few speaking. And I don't want to be too negative. You can see that CNS was trying its best, but I think it perhaps missed the point. I think one of the ways to encourage women into a cargo is to show them that other women are participating. You know, you see women on stage talking about cargo. And they did do a, a women in air cargo panel and they confined these incredibly senior women from Cafe Pacific to talking about family-friendly companies and and so on. And it, it kind of missed the point when they could have been talking rather fluently about cargo but I, I have heard from other conference organisers that when people are asked to speak, 100% of men say, yes, they'll do it. And very, very few women say, yes, they'll do it. And when they do say yes, they want to know exactly who they're talking to and what the point of it all is, whereas men apparently just turn up and talk. I don't know, perhaps conference organisers should offer courses in public speaking or, or perhaps be more specific when approaching women to speak. And then, of course, there was also the golf event at CNS, which did spark some attention as well. Yeah, there's an element of truth in that in terms of the conference speakers, because when I'm organizing podcast speakers, I sometimes have the same experience and I'm desperate to get more women speakers on to join us when we're having these chats. But on the golf thing, I don't get that. I mean, I'm awful at golf, but I've played a bit and played in competitions and they're always divided by gender. So why do they do these competitions where they're trying to get everyone in together at the start of these big conferences when... Men and women normally play that sport separately. What, what's that about? I don't get it. I've never played golf, so I, I know very little about it, to be honest. As someone said, it's a good walk spoiled. But CNS has done their golf event for quite a while, and I, I think it presumably is mixed. I don't know. And it's very popular. I mean, some women there said it was fine. They play golf, it's all good. But other women felt it was a real barrier to their own networking. So perhaps CNS should introduce another sport as well. I don't know, tennis or something like that. I've no idea. But personally, I'd prefer crazy golf networking. That would be much more fun. I'm very much up for that. I love crazy golf and I'm far better at it than normal golf. Also, although still pretty average. I'm terrible at it, but it's fun. It is a good laugh. Um, more positively, uh, you did a great story on this. There was a display at CNS that 
was showing how easily dogs can be trained to sniff out lithium batteries in shipments. And of course, lithium batteries can be a fire threat. That sounds like quite an imaginative way to demonstrate something. What was it like? Yeah, it, it was great. It was all over in seconds, though. I mean, the dogs were really quick. I totally agree. Dogs should be able to come to conferences. It made it way more fun. But in fact, I did look it up. A French company first trained dogs to sniff out lithium batteries last year. But dogs are used far more for security in the US than they are in Europe. There's something like a thousand dogs and handlers working in US security today. Um, it's a great way to detect undeclared lithium batteries, which are a real threat, in particular in e-commerce. So it could be a game changer, but as ever, the question is, who's going to pay for it? Is it the airline? Is it the handler? If some airlines, although apparently no US carriers as yet, are looking into it, and it is the airlines, of course, that have the most to lose. Interesting. You also reported that the US Transportation Security Administration, the TSA, has edge forwarders to advise customers of new screening rules which come into force on the 31st of October. Halloween, that seems apt. What are these rules and what do customers need to do? Well, I'll just be very brief, but yes, end of October, there are changes to the quite badly titled impracticable to screen amendment. Essentially, you just have to screen everything now, even big things like tanks, which before had a slightly easier screening process. So it's just a message in the TSA, forwarders, please talk to your customers about ensuring that everyone meets the new requirements. In part two, I'm talking to DHL and oil refinery executives about some recent successes and the major challenges that everyone faces in trying to produce and use enough sustainable aviation fuel in the coming years as we try to get air cargo a little bit more eco-friendly. We need to work out who's going to pay for it, don't we? Now, there were a few positive stories at CNS, wasn't there, Alex? There were, yeah. There were some interesting speakers on it, and it felt slightly like the industry's turned a corner, in my opinion. Latam Cargo and Swiss World Cargo were particularly interesting about it, and they both made the point that, yeah, it's going to cost a fortune, billions of dollars, and everyone is going to have to pay for it. So everyone's just stopped moaning about that right now, really, I think was, <laughs> that's me summarising what they said. Um <laughs> One of the more interesting things was I met a guy from Pittsburgh Airport. It's already off-grid. It supplies its own energy through solar panels. It's also fracking for gas. It believes it has enough feedstock to produce its own SAF, and then that would help it to sort of lure in traffic, which I think is really interesting. I think that only Amsterdam currently is looking, or well, the Netherlands is looking at producing its own SAF. Another secondary airport, Chicago Rockford, has pointed out that airlines can really cut emissions by avoiding big congested airports just through less taxiing, less congestion in the skies, that sort of thing, being able to turn off engines far quicker. So I think there's some interesting ideas coming out. Very interesting. Yeah. And, you know, producing the SAF is one challenge. Getting the feedstock is another. And then getting it to the airport is the final, final element of that equation which we'll be looking at in part two, which is coming right up. But for now, Alex Lenane, thanks for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. Absolute pleasure, Mike. Thank you. I do know it's a bit of a cliche, 
But that really is the sound of progress captured by my son, Evan King, in fact, on a trip we both took to Humber Refinery, owned by refining giant Philip 66. It's located in the northeast of England, and it's one of Europe's most sophisticated refineries. As well as being at the forefront of carbon capture processing, it's also leading the way in the production of sustainable aviation fuel, widely referred to as simply SAF. Today we'll be explaining some of the bottlenecks in terms of boosting SAF production and hearing from one DHL executive who is trying to drive change as well as take along shipper customers who at the end of the day are the people who are going to have to pay for the green transition of aviation. But first let's look at the size of the challenge as the airline industry moves away from fossil fuels. SAF is essentially a liquid fuel produced from various waste, municipal, fats, oils, greases, agricultural, forestry, all sorts of stuff can be used as SAF feedstock. SAF can also be produced synthetically via a process that captures carbon directly from the air. Now, it's an attractive fuel because it can cut carbon emissions by 80%, so it really is a must if aviation is to hit environmental targets. IATA, the International Air Transport Association, believes SAF can get aviation 65% of the way to net zero by 2050. But although over the last decade there has been progress, there needs to be a massive increase in production and a huge decrease in cost, possibly with supply-side support from governments, if SAF is going to become competitive with fossil kerosene. To put this into context, in 2020, according to one European Commission study, SAF supply met only 0.05% of demand for aviation fuel at EU airports. In order to get that percentage up to 5% by 2030 for all flights departing from EU airports, some 2.3 million tonnes of SAF is required. But current production amounts to less than 0.3 million tonnes, so that's quite some jump. Annual production at Philip 66's Humber plant is only around 20,000 tonnes at the moment. With a fair wind, they're hoping to more than double that amount by 2025. But increasing production is not easy. Over to Simon Holt, manager of the refiners Emerging Energy Europe division. Doubling is very difficult because we don't know what the next constraint is going to be. Every time we increase, we come across a limit out there on the refinery that stops us processing more, whether that's a hardware constraint on the on a pump or a, the import infrastructure, the processing unit. You know, we've had problems with catalysts deactivating, we need to change catalysts. So every time we hit the limit, we've got to think, what do we need to do? So we get back with our technical experts in Oklahoma, in the refinery, and we design a change to the process and we increase further. So we go through this kind of stepwise trial and error to increase the processing. For refiners like Philip 66, being in a position to make those investments means a lot of stakeholders collaborating and pulling in the same direction. They need to know how much SAF carriers will definitely buy, how much feedstock is available and exactly what incentives are available from government to push all this forward. These are long-term commitments and they need long-term plans. But in the UK and elsewhere, these incentives have been hard to come by or pin down, not least from governments that have understandably spent much of the last few years coping with a pandemic, which means the industry really is behind the eight ball when it comes to hitting even the most modest of 2030 targets. 
The technical challenges are many and the investment required substantial. Chris Gilbert, manager of Humber Decarbonisation Projects at Philips 66. So to increase our SAF production, I think is a journey. One mainly around technical challenges. So replacing our fossil fuel stock with used cooking oil has had its many challenges and we've been spending our time taking each problem, finding a solution and then gradually increasing till we get the next ceiling. So it's mainly technical, I would say. Now, if we were looking for a step change in production, you're looking at building new SAF facilities. And it's a different process. So if you're looking at municipal waste, first of all, you have to gasify that and then convert it directly to SAF or to an initial liquid and then to SAF. They need large large investment and need the right financial incentives for those big step changes in production. But there are positives if production bottlenecks and supply of feedstock challenges can be overcome. As we heard from Alex Lenane earlier on, some airports in the US, such as Pittsburgh, are hoping to gain competitive advantage by producing SAF on site. Because this won't need to be transported, its SAF should be cheaper, making it a law for carriers. In the UK, existing infrastructure can be used to distribute SAF from refineries to airports. Back to Simon Holt. We're well located because the UK jet fuel pipeline system comes by the refinery. The concept came out during the Second World War, so they developed this pipeline network idea. It wasn't actually built until 1940. Seven, I think, and it connects all the major airports and the uh, air bases in the UK. There's two import locations, one at Immingham and one at Isle of Grain on the Thames. So jet fuel can be imported and then distributed around the UK from our pipeline system. So the fossil jet and the, and the sustainable aviation fuel that we produce at this refinery is blended into a tank and it is then pumped into that pipeline system and it can be delivered to most airports. I don't think it can get to airports like Luton Airport, but it can go to Heathrow, Gatwick, Manchester, the main airports through that system. To discuss some of these issues, I'm now delighted to introduce Catherine Brost, who's the global head of DHL Global Forwarding's Go Green program. Hello, Catherine. Hi, Mike. Thank you very much for having me on this podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm glad that you've come on because we've got some hard and complex issues that we're hoping to simplify as much as we can for our listeners. You guys at DHL, you've announced a new strategic partnership with IAG Cargo. This happened in mid-June. And just give us some basic details. Now, you're going to purchase 11.5 million tonnes of SAF this year. Some of this is going to be produced in Philips 66's Humber plant in the UK, which we we heard a few noises from earlier and from some of their executives. Presumably, this is just the start of things, is it? You're going to ramp up this later on. Indeed. Uh, sustainable aviation fuel is playing a key role when it comes to decarbonizing uh, the air freight industry. And it's really important that we increase the demand and there was then the supply of sustainable aviation fuel. Because if we want to decarbonize in line with the Paris Agreement, then 
we need to shoot for approximately 30% sustainable aviation fuel by 2030. So it's, it's a long way to go. And it, it's really key to start investing in sustainable aviation fuel today. Catherine, sorry to push the point here, but can you explain a little bit more detail exactly how that process works where you get this capacity for the SAF capacity of IAG, please? Yeah, happy to do so. So basically, we pay the price difference between the fossil jet fuel and the sustainable aviation fuel. So IEG purchases the sustainable aviation fuel from Philips 66. And we help by funding the price difference, which IEG would uh, normally pay for fossil fuel instead of the sustainable aviation fuel. So it's win-win. It's win-win indeed. I know from interviewing people myself that SAF production is a big challenge. There's this chicken and egg problem, isn't there? There's a failure of governments and regulators to provide clear financial incentives for producers to make enough SAF. We've also got technology bottlenecks for the producers themselves because this is a competitive market and they don't necessarily share the best production practices, which slows down that investment process as well. And of course, we've got limitations on recycled feedstocks of the, the type that Philips 66 are using. So you must be really concerned that as operators yourself, you've got targets that you've got to hit. And I know you've got some very stringent internal targets on getting net logistics emissions down to zero by 2050, for example. So is that production element of the SAF equation, is that what really concerns you right now? Well, it's of course something that we, we have on our radar, but it, not that much of a concern. So, so first of all, being from DHL Global Forwarding, this means that we do not operate any own assets. So when it comes to air freight, we very much rely on partners like IAG to use the sustainable aviation fuel on our behalf. So what we essentially do is we help them to fund the sustainable fuel switch and to use the fuel on our behalf. We can't do it ourselves, of course. If you look at the sustainable aviation fuel production, it's very clear that organic feedstock is limited and that towards 2030, we will need to leverage new technologies. These are being tested. They are very promising production places, small sets are being built at this point in time. So until 2030, it will be very much biofuel, which we need to leverage. But right now, I would say uh, we haven't leveraged what's possible. So I, I sometimes find it's a bit of a theoretical Discussion, yes, of course, we know um, the feedstocks which are being used today will not be sufficient to cover the need for aviation or other transport modes. But right now it's there, it's available, we can use it. But of course, we need to look into alternative feedstocks and alternative technologies. But I can see in the industry is very promising. So I'm actually not too concerned. Um, it, I think the technology is there. It's a matter of will and money. There's an awful lot of regulations around this, isn't there, which I'm sort of trying to get to the grips with myself. You mentioned the Paris Agreement. There's the uh, Refuel EU Aviation Regulation. Now, this still needs to be agreed by member states, but once this moves forward, it will require aircraft departing from EU airports from 2025 to be using 2% SAF, and that rises to 6% from 2030. And then it, it keeps increasing right through to 2050 when I think it's 70%. 
Get these regulations helping you push this industry forward, push staff production forward by setting clear targets? Or could the EU, could governments be doing more maybe? So regulation is, is not a bad thing. Of course, uh, being an international company, we prefer global schemes and not just regional schemes. But in general, regulation is helping to create a level playing field. And of course, with respect to the different EU regulations, it's definitely helping to increase the demand and the supply for a sustainable fuel. So that's a good thing. That, of course, if you look at some of the targets, namely 6% by 2030, it's not enough. So we believe that it's important to have a voluntary market in addition to the respective regulations so that those companies who are willing and able to move faster to, to be a first mover can actually benefit from the technologies and solutions which are out there. Now, I know from the press releases I see and some of the stories often in the mainstream press that I see, there's an awful lot of shippers out there who are telling the world that they're desperate to buy these products. But when I actually speak to operators like yourselves sometimes, not that I'm saying that you've said this, but I hear a slightly different story about shippers sometimes being reluctant to pay a little bit more for SAF products or sustainable products. Are you getting feedback from customers that they're really keen on on buying the SAF products that you're going to be providing via IAG in terms of that procurement process for DHL Global Forwarding? So let me start with a bigger picture. So if you want to decarbonize your transportation footprint, there are two things you can do. You can either burn less or you can burn clean. So burning less means that you look into supply chain optimization levers like modal shifts or consolidation, basically less fuel, less CO2 per ton kilometer. And of course, this is generally preferable because it's often an opportunity to save costs. But these levers have been optimized more or less to a maximum. So the, the biggest and now most important lever is to truly decarbonize by leveraging sustainable fuels. And yes, it's more expensive. Uh, shippers are increasingly aware of this. Of course, they continue to try to optimize the supply chain via efficiency levers, but they do understand that there's actually no way around using sustainable fuels. And they also understand that there's a supply and demand challenge. And when um, we speak to shippers who, like us, have got a science-based target in place, they, they very much understand that this is an investment they need to take. Of course, right now, the demand is moderate. I would say, but what I can also see, and maybe to give it a different perspective, the demand for a sustainable fuel-based transport solution is increasing significantly. Compared to last year, we have four times as many customers investing. So it's also rapidly picking up. But of course, if you think about the 10,000s of customers we are doing business with, it's still a comparably smaller number of customers investing into sustainable fuel solutions. Annual production at Philips 66's plant on the Humber is only around 20,000 tonnes at the moment. Are you optimistic that this is all gathering pace? Absolutely, because if, if you look at the speed, the demand is increasing. Also, let's not forget that these sustainable fuel solutions in aviation and maritime shipping, they are only around for less than two years. So this is especially if you think about the scope three emission 
based solutions, which are often referred to as insetting. This is very, very new uh, solution. And this is picking up very, very rapidly. Where does this initiative with IAG or these various initiatives you've got in, in terms of aviation, where does this fit in terms of your overall Go Green program? How important is it to that? And, and how does it tie in with something like, I know you did some deals on the maritime fuels sector a little bit with good shipping. You had an MOU with sustainable fuel in 2017 with, with that company. Is this all part of the same thrust? Yeah, so this is basically what we call burning clean. So this is the second S-curve and it's also our, well, I wouldn't say it's the only lever, but it's basically the key lever for us to meet our own carbonization targets in line with the Paris Agreement with the SBTI. So it's make or break essentially for us. Are there any other sustainable aviation initiatives that you can uh, tell us about that you're working on at the moment? Basically, we are always working very closely with our multiple um, carrier partners. Uh, we also run an, an annual Go Green Carrier Performance Survey and Dialogue, and our message is very clear. We expect all our key carriers to invest into sustainable aviation fuel and to increase the usage to around 30% by 2030. But it's, it's not just the actual use of the sustainable aviation fuel. What's really also key is to develop a standard on how to allocate the emission reductions, how to account for them. So we are actually working with quite a few industry initiatives to develop such accounting frameworks, like with the Smart Trade Center or the World Economic Forum. But we are also looking at joint projects with different certification bodies because it's important to create a standard to have a registry for the emission reductions, or to be honest, it's not even a reduction, it's an avoidance. We are avoiding emissions and we need a credible and reliable and scalable registry to manage this in the most efficient way. So this is also an area where we are very much engaged. And just finally, do you think you mentioned being a first mover earlier? Do you think that's a disadvantage for you as a company versus some of the people who are dragging their heels out there, who maybe they're trying to gain some financial advantage. Do you think there is a disadvantage for DHL by pushing ahead with this or what's your view on that? No, I honestly think it's not a disadvantage. I think it's very much appreciated by our stakeholders and shareholders. And when in 2021, we announced our sustainability roadmap, which included the fact that we're going to spend seven billion by 2030 to realize our decarbonization target, our share price did not drop. So um, I think it's very much understood that such investments need to happen and that global warming or the abatement of global warming rather comes at a price and we have to pay it. And DPDHL is a front runner. We do believe that we can make a difference and we are determined to, to play a key part in abating global warming. Well, I wish you the best of luck with that. Catherine Brost, Global Head of DHL Global Forwarding's Go Green program. Thanks for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. Thank you. I'd like to thank TAC Index and Lodestar's air freight data provider and Zenita, our sea freight data supplier. 
big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon. 